Good morning, church. So thankful to be here with you again today. I'm so thankful, as Tony mentioned, to be uh, a part of a body of believers that I consider uh, beautiful. In spite of our flaws and in spite of our shortcomings, um, we are beautiful because we're in Christ. And Christ is in us and, and he is God. I'm so thankful that uh, you show grace and patience with me as we grow together. I'm thankful that uh, I've seen it personally with you and many of you, if not most of you, there is a commitment to growing in the word of God um, and really, based on what our sermon is today, really I see for the vast majority of you, of you, the pursuit of Christian character. That's where we're going to be today in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. The pursuit of Christian character. Will you pray with me before we begin in 2 Peter 1 today? Father God, we are so amazed by your beauty and your glory. Lord, the same beauty, the same glory that sent Jesus to the cross to atone for our sin, to take on our wrath, also saw to it that he was resurrected from the grave, that he, was, that he has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, sits with you to live and to reign now and forever. We thank you that the beauty of the cross extends much further than just to the first century believers, the eyewitnesses to this beauty, but the beauty of the cross extends to us. You have taken on our wrath, you have taken on our sin. You bore our sin that we might die to it and live to righteousness. We have been healed by your wounds. Lord, we thank you that in that beauty, that Christian character and virtue, they are not things that are questionable about a Christian life. They're not things that possibly could happen or might happen in a Christian life. But because of who you are, they are things that will happen in the life of those who are redeemed. When we have your nature, Lord, we have no other choice but to live like you. Our nature calls us to do what our nature wants to do. Lord, we praise you because in all of this, you are long-suffering. You are patient. You endure along with us while we learn, while we grow, while we make mistakes. You, learn, or you endure with us. You have never left us. You have never forsaken us. You will not abandon us to ourselves, to those who belong to you. So, Lord, as we work our way, we work out our salvation, Lord, in fear and trembling, I pray that you would help us to always remember the truth that Jesus is alive. He's living in us now and forevermore, and that makes all the difference. Lord, we praise you. We trust you. 
we know that your plans are done on earth as they are in heaven. We pray that you would bless this sermon, open our hearts, Lord, including mine, our hearts and our minds, to hear your word, to allow you to transform our lives permanently, to walk more in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, we love you, we ask these things in that precious name because there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The precious name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we studied a few introductory thoughts for our verses today uh, and next week. So the next two weeks, verses 3 and 4 introduced us to basically verses 5 through 11. Knowledge is a dominating theme in 2 Peter. We've already seen that. The truth of the matter is, something you must clearly understand is, while love is a huge aspect, and we'll see that again today, love is a huge aspect of the Christian life, we cannot separate our heart from our mind. Our heart is what leads us to love the Lord and to love others, and our head is what leads us to follow him and do the necessary things to walk in faith. We must both have love and knowledge in order to grow as a follower of Christ. Under the gift of knowledge, we looked at four truths last week that we learned about Christ that should give us immense hope and assurance. We have first the knowledge of his divine power, his dynamis. His divine power gives us all the confidence that he has done what he says he has done and he will do it in us and everyone else who surrenders to him throughout all of history. He is the God who created all things. As a matter of fact, nothing that was created was created apart from him. He created all things. Not only is he keeping all things, the fact that our bodies, the matter that makes up our mass is being held together right now is because God commands it so. Just like at creation, he spoke the world into existence. He speaks us to persistence. The fact that we exist and persist is because of the power, the divine, the dynamic power of God. He is keeping the world together. Just a little bit of change in gravitational force one way or the other and we explode or we fly away. Just a little different tilt of the axis and we freeze or we burn. But not with God, not with the sovereign, divinely powered God who is controlling all things. It is the same power that raised him from the dead. I want you to understand something. Because we have the divine power of God, it does not mean that we are safe. His power does not guarantee safety and security and freedom and, and, and um, uh, all, always endurance. It does not guarantee all of these things all the time. But it does guarantee the assurance of victory in the end. Being a Christian is not safe. Being under the divine power of God is not safe, but it is good. He is never out of control. The second thing we saw last week was his life and godliness. He gave us his eternal life and the ability to live like him. 
We are given his life and godliness. It's his divine power that gives us that. So then our godliness, our goodness says more about him than it does about us. If we live for Christ, it is because of Christ. If we abandon sin, it is because of Christ. If we trust him, it is because of Christ. As a matter of fact, I believe this is the single most reason that if you call yourself a Christian, you should live with absolute certainty that you can live the Christian life. It is because of his life and godliness. It is his It is not ours. The third we talked about last week was his divine power. It's his divine power that, I mean, excuse me, his calling. Sorry, it was so good I had to say it twice. His calling, remember, his calling is effectual. His calling is not like me asking you to come up on stage or me calling you over to me, I want to tell you something. His calling is as if it was a completed action. It's effectual. It works. What has he called us to? Peter said, his beauty and moral goodness. What I have found, friends, in my life to be true, and I hope that you find it in yours, and I hope that I continue to find it even more, is that the draw for Christians should eventually be the goodness of God and his beauty. Listen, I think it's okay to come to Christ because you have nothing and you have nowhere else to go. I think it's okay to come to Christ because he gives you something. I know that somebody might not say that. I know that somebody would say, well, you're just trusting in fire insurance. You just don't want to go to hell. I think it's okay to trust in Jesus because you don't want to go to hell. I think that's good. I think it's a good thought. I think it's okay to trust in Jesus because everyone else in the world has abandoned you. Everything else you've tried doesn't work. I think it's okay. But I think spiritual growth proves that trusting in God for what he can do for us is not enough. That eventually, even though it may have began because of what he can do for us, it ends because of who he is. His goodness and his beauty should attract us much more over time than what he can do for us. Most people come to Christ for what he can do for you. That's fine. Just don't stay there. Just don't stay there. The last thing we discovered that should give us super confidence is is his nature. Because nature determines behavior. Nature determines environment. Nature determines association. So what you do... um, how you act in certain situations and who you associate with uh, are evidences of your faith or lack thereof. When we take on the nature of Christ, we lose our old nature. We have a new nature. We have a new environment. We have new behaviors. We have new associations. This doesn't mean being perfect, and as we'll see a little bit more today, but it does mean that when we have the nature of Christ, that what we want and long for and then do, what we want to belong to, changes. It changes. For many, it's not immediate. For Paul, not everybody has a road to Damascus experience like Paul does. 
I want to tell you, if we surveyed 100 Christians, this is not the family feud, but if we surveyed 100 Christians, we would find that 99 to 100 of them have said that their walk with Christ has been progressive and not immediate, that they grew over time and not right away. One of the biggest downfalls for people wanting to follow Christ is not wanting to be different, not wanting to live a different life, not wanting to give things up. But one of the truest assurances that I have is that the new nature changes our heart in a way that most of the things we have to give up eventually don't matter to us as we're giving them up. we take on the nature of Christ, we lose that old nature, so things must change. Sometimes forcefully, sometimes you're doing things and you must eliminate them immediately. But sometimes things just change as we grow in our new nature. I think this sets us up well for today. Let's read 2 Peter, we're going to read 2 Peter 1 verses 5 through 7. So far today, I haven't said 1 Peter, so I feel like I'm winning compared to last week. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Probably one of those things where I just spoke too soon. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and, with, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Last week, we spent most of our time discussing why we have confidence in our faith. All four of those truths discussed last week are concerning strictly what God gives us. These are God's abilities and powers that are enacted upon us. These are things that are out of our control. If we take on Christ, then we get them from God. Today, because of those four things, today we will discuss what we give to God. Now, of course, there's this big disclaimer, and I think that you know this from me about now, but just in case, there's this big disclaimer that when I say what we give to God, it's always predicated on the fact that he has given to us, right? It's always predicated on the fact that it's not our own things, but it's because of him that we can give these gifts. But there is Christian action. There is a Christian work that is necessary, and today we're going to talk about those things that we give to God. These virtues, if, if the four we discussed last week were important because it shows God's commitment to us, these eight virtues show our commitment to the Lord, show our commitment to Christian character. I believe if those four virtues from last week confirm the power and all of those things about God that gives us such assurance that these eight will help us give assurance about how we are walking. The surety of our own faith. Now we obviously understand that every good gift comes from God. And I think we're getting a better understanding of the fact that his great calling has given us a new nature. So in faith we must understand that this new nature leads us to be different. Now these great gifts proceed and are the foundation for all human effort. These eight virtues that we will discuss. 
I was discussing this with our Wednesday night MC, and you may have never heard this explained before, and um, you probably have if you've heard me preach a couple times, but just in case. When I think about how God wills upon us and how we act for God, I believe that's where we really need to have the discussion of free will. I believe in free will. Now, I am a, I, I, you know how I believe. You know I'm, I believe heavily on the sovereignty of God. I know for a fact that it was God who chose me and I didn't choose him. God called me to salvation. God called you to salvation. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't want it any other way and you shouldn't want it any other way. In our free will, we have free will on both sides of salvation though. The first side of salvation is a dead nature. Remember, your nature affects your environment, it affects your behavior, it affects your associations. In your dead nature, all you can do is be dead. And I've been around a few corpses. Now, that sounds weird to say like that, but just take it for what it is and not, not make me explain it. And I've seen all that they can provide this world. All that those dead bodies can provide this world. Those dead bodies can provide what? Grief, mourning, but no power. No power back into the world. No breath, no life, nothing. So in our dead nature, what do we provide? We provide nothing productive as it pertains to following Christ. We provide dead works. Because we are alive physically, our nature is dead before Christ. Our nature is dead. We provide nothing. We, can, we continue to act, but even though we're alive physically, our acts are dead acts. But it's not so with the new nature. This is where I think uh, free will is so important. In our free will before Christ, we do dead works. Our free will really starts to take, take place, take shape after Christ. Because now, after we are saved, we have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, and we have to decide whether or not we will use those tools to enact our free will to follow Christ on a minute-by-minute, daily, hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis. Your free will is immensely important because after Christ, you choose to follow him daily or you choose don't to, uh, to not. And I believe that this living nature will always cause you to choose a more progressive and gradual walk towards his will. So part of these life choices are found in these eight virtues we see today. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, meaning there are more than eight virtues. But these are the eight vir virtues that Peter decided to focus on. He decided that the church, the churches at Asia Minor needed to hear the most. They are not really even building blocks of each other. They're not progressive. It's not like if you get faith, you get virtue. If you get virtue, you get knowledge. If you get knowledge, you get self-control. It doesn't work like that. They're actually more of things that are uh, maybe concentric circles. They're, they sit by themselves, but they also overlap, right? There's also places where they overlap and they uh, work for and with each other. So let's start today. I want to look at these eight virtues of Christian character. The first is faith. We see at the very beginning of 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Peter says, For this very reason. For this reason connects verses 3 and 4 to verses 5 through 7 today, 5 through 11, really. Peter is exhorting his readers to live Christ, a Christ-like life because Christ has given them everything they need for life and godliness. And I believe what he's doing in a sense is he is listing off some of these things that, is, that are everything we need. And he starts with faith. This is trusting in God. And trusting in God, friends, is the foundation for all other virtues. Faith is the catalyst for all good works. We know that faith is a gift of God, as are all of the other seven. But faith is something that also must be worked out. It's something that is strengthened or weakened over time by experience or by what we have seen or understand. Our faith can be strengthened or weakened by choices we make. We choose whether or not to act on our faith by following him in this virtuous path. If we choose not to follow him on this virtuous path, our faith is weakened. If we choose to follow him on this virtuous path, our faith is strengthened through victories and hardship. We choose whether or not to lean into God during hard times or to bail out and go for the cheap way. If we choose to bail out and go for the exit, go for the detour, go for the escape path, our faith is weakened. But if we choose to look for the end or the way through, then our faith is strengthened. We choose whether we wait for the best or we settle for good or the worst. Friends, I want to tell you, many times in our life, our path is riddled with the consequences of the bad choices before we came to Christ or before we really committed ourselves to Christ. And there, is, there will be this conflict between your old nature and old choices and what your new nature wants. And I can promise you, the enemy will not make it easy to escape your old choices while you're trying to grow in Christ. The enemy will not make it easy to escape your immaturities while you're trying to grow in Christ. So you can look for the way out and you can say, okay, well, I tried this Christianity thing. It got too hard and it just didn't work for me. Or you can go on and you can say, okay, I trust God. I know that things are hard right now, some by my own doing, some because that's the way life is, and I'm going to continue going on trusting in him. Faith is the ability to continue on even when everything else in your being says escape, even when everything else in your mind and your psyche says run away. We choose whether or not to believe all that we have been taught when we, or we choose whether or not to believe or have faith when we are examining all that we've been taught and whether or not we truly believe it to the point of application in our life. All of this starts by trusting his divine power, that God gets what he wants as it pertains to his will. That if he writes it, it's done. Friends, I want to tell you, as far as faith goes, there is no amount of effort or will that can start or stop the plans of God. 
And you might think, some of you might look at that and be like, ooh, that's heavy, that's negative. Some of you might look at that and say, that's positive. I want you to look at it this way. If I trust in this God and he lives in me and he has all the plans for my life that are good, even though sometimes they're bad, there is nothing that can stop the goodness of God in my life. So I will trust that. I will trust that. I will have faith. First John says, eventually as we grow in, um, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. So there are some things in your life that you might be unsure about. The obvious choice for you then, friends, is to lean into what God has said and trust him. Trusting in the Lord allows you to pursue other virtues. And the second is, I'm going to title it the word virtue, but it has the same meaning, just two different words. The word for virtue actually here is uh, erite, and it is goodness. It's the same word used for moral excellence in uh, the first part of chapter 1 about God. It's the same word, erite, used for God's moral excellence. Peter said, add to or supply with your faith goodness, moral excellence. If we have faith, This is somewhat easy because we know that God has already given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. So God creates and he supplies the moral excellence that he demands. It is expected of you, but it is supplied. Can I tell you, friends, that there is no command that God gives you that he has not already made way for in your life and given you the power to complete in your life and all the necessary tools and abilities you need to follow through. If God tells you to repent and believe the gospel, if he tells you to turn from an old life, he gives you the power, the ability, and the will to do that, to see it all the way through. And although he might not see you all the way through in a day or a month or or a year, he will see you through because he has promised that and he is faithful. Virtue, moral excellence. God creates and supplies the moral excellence that he demands. Another way to look at goodness is this. When a thing fulfills its natural purpose. Friends, when you put clothes in a washing machine, you expect at the end of that cycle to have clean clothes. When you put food in the oven, you expect at the end of that timer to have uh, cooked food. I was going to say delicious, but it doesn't always turn out that way. Cooked food. When you swing a hammer to a nail, you expect it to drive that nail. Because its nature is to clean. Its nature is to cook. Its nature is to drive a nail. Goodness can be seen merely like, simply like this. It is when we follow our nature And our nature is to follow God. How disappointed would you be if you put food in the oven and it washed it? And how disappointed would you be if you put clothes in the washing machine and it cooked it? It is because we come to expect things of our washing machine that we don't expect of ourselves. 
We come to expect things of our oven that we don't expect of ourselves. We expect the washing machine to act in its own nature, but we don't even expect us as believers in a new nature to act in our own nature at times. The nature that God commands and requires and calls of us. Virtue then is just acting in the nature that has been given to you by the Lord. Fulfilling your purpose. In our old nature, we would do what was naturally expected. We would flee from and despise God. But in our new nature, we develop virtue, moral excellence. So much so that later on we see in the New Testament in uh, 1 John that his commands will eventually not even be a burden. But they will come more naturally, more and more, because they are within what our nature tells us to do. Warren Wiersbe says, and this, is, this hit me hard, and I hope it does to you. This is not something you've heard the first time, but it was just pointed for here. True Christian nature is not polishing human qualities, but developing divine ones that make a person more like Jesus. True, his, true Christian nature is not making divine or human qualities better. I do think there is an aspect of using what God has given us, our gifts, to, for his glory. But it's not just making our love a little bit better. It's not just making our kindness a little bit better. It is making them like Jesus so that we create them in a divinely moral way and not just a humanistically moral way. So faith begins things, and then we add virtue, then we add knowledge. This is the third or fourth time knowledge is mentioned thus far in Second Peter. So do you begin to think a little bit that it's important? The word for knowledge here means full knowledge or a knowledge that is developing. Uh, I did not make this connection until last week, but it makes sense. This knowledge is not a list of facts and truths. This knowledge is not a mere, uh, a mere um, belief in God or an understanding of God. This knowledge that Peter is mentioning is the practical ability to discern. This knowledge is actually discernment. It's the practical ability to discern. It's practical knowledge. Listen, friends, and you need to hear this. This is probably the part that you need to tune into if you've tuned out. and Because uh, I know that that happens. So tune, tune back in. One of the greatest shortfalls in the church today, and I think it's even present in our church, is that we have a ton of knowledge about God and don't know what to do with it. Peter says, while you are growing in faith and virtue, you should also try to understand the world in a way that you see God better and see what is from him and see what is not from him. That is discernment. Friends, if we are leaning, uh, if we are learning all things in the Bible, all things of the Bible, all things of God, and we don't know how to use them, we don't know how to interpret them, then uh, with our current culture, then we are missing the mark as it pertains to knowledge. As a matter of fact, and you can disagree with this, uh, it doesn't really matter to me because it's already settled in my mind. I think it's one of my primary callings to help you understand how the Bible relates to the culture and the world today. That is truly what I believe discernment is. One of the greatest traits that you can have, that you can teach your children that you can develop amongst yourselves is the ability to discern. It will save you a lot of heartaches. It will save you a lot of mistakes. 
Parents, if you are teaching your children a lot about the Bible, but you aren't teaching them how to practically use it and apply it, you're making a mistake. Knowledge, then, is the ability to handle life successfully, to discern, to understand. Now, there's no easy way to do this, but I want to give you some ideas that might help develop discernment. These are not like hard facts. If I do these things, I will be discerning. No, but here are some things. Don't be hyper-spiritual, but if someone or some group is coming after children, assume that it's demonic. If someone or some group is coming after children in a, in a, in a negative way, assume that it is a spiritual attack and that it's demonic. Whether it's trans ideology or gender ideology, whether it's schooling, whether it's ads, whether it's cartoons, whether it's movies, whatever it may be, if they are coming after children, assume that it's demonic because the devil knows that the quickest way to change a generation is not to change the hearts of already hardened adults, but to harden the hearts of soft-hearted children. So if, some, if something is coming after children, you can assume that it's a spiritual attack and demonic. Don't be hyper-spiritual. Some people are just dumb and they make dumb mistakes. But don't think, don't usually assume that an attack or, a, or a, um, a fight for your child is something that is just, um, you know, innocent and pure. Know scripture well enough that you don't accidentally make mistakes. I can't tell you how many accidental mistakes I've made in my life because I didn't know. And then I found out later and I was like, boy, that was, that was a mistake. I can't tell you how many people I've had to counsel who, who thought at the time they were doing good, something good. And then you're like, well, this is what the Bible says about that. And you, they are mourning in a good time in their life because they made mistakes that they didn't know the truth about. So don't be hyper-spiritual, but assume that if some, something or someone's coming after your children that it's a spiritual attack. Know scripture well enough that you don't actually make, uh, you don't make accidental mistakes. Trust others who are more discerning even if you don't exactly see um, what they see. Now, I'm not saying only myself because there are a lot of other people, but I believe that God has given me in many ways, a gift of discernment. Now, this is not in opposition to you. This is not as opposed to you not having discernment. This is just me talking about myself. I think God has given me in many ways a gift of discernment. I think one of the gifts that I'm able to give this church is the ability to see culture, the ability to see the Bible, and to see how they work together and how to navigate that. Trust people who are more discerning than you are. Um, I tell you what, you don't necessarily want the gift of discernment, you want it, but you don't want it because it also comes with a heavy temptation to cynicism. So I fight all the time with being cynical as opposed to being discerning. So you have to be careful. If you don't find yourself being a cynical person, if you find yourself being a trusting person, find yourself being overly trusting, you're probably not discerning. So there are other people you should trust in more and consider more than even yourself as it pertains to this. And I think some, simply pray for discernment. Pray for discernment. The Lord doesn't want you confused. God doesn't want you confused. He wants you to be discerning. And so if it's something you desire and you long for and you pursue, he will give it to you. This knowledge is a knowledge that helps us to understand, to make right choices, a practical knowledge, a discernment. The fourth thing is self-control. Self-control. 
add on to knowledge with self-control. Those who have knowledge should be seeking self-control. Remember, just because you recognize something as anti-Christ or morally corrupt doesn't mean you will, have, you will do the right thing when it comes time to do the right thing. Think about all the times in your life that you knew something was right and you chose otherwise. Just because you know what's right doesn't mean you will do what's right. You have to have the knowledge and then you have to pray and, under- and seek self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And genuine knowledge cannot exist apart from self-control. Self-control is being able to assess situations and calmly and helpfully respond. Self-control is why an EMT is, comes up on a, on a horrific crash scene and they're able to help calmly as opposed to you who's over there screaming like a baby. It's why people in... Uh, military-type situations are able to revert to their training as opposed to if we were in the same situation without any practice, without any training, we would probably freak out. Self-control enables, uh, enables us to have a knowledge about the situation, to assess it, and to calmly and to productively, helpfully respond. To use your knowledge to make clear assessments on situations and act appropriately. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. That's self-control. This is really self-control. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. A man who rules his spirit, a man who has self-control, is better than a conqueror of a city. Verse 25, chapter 25, verse 28 of Proverbs says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Self-control comes from personal discipline. Make new and better choices. Make incremental changes in your life. Rome wasn't built in a day, so your faith will not be built in a day. As a matter of fact, I believe our faith is built on a thousand choices we make, a thousand little exercises, a thousand little works. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race... All runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are imperishable. So I do not uh, run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Self-control is a key to every area in our life. I think one way to build self-control is to have goals, attainable goals, and to pursue them. It would be easy for me to throw, a, throw five darts at this wall over here and then draw a huge circle and a huge bullseye around all the darts that I just threw. What victory would I have in that? But if I have a goal of hitting that target, that bullseye, and then I throw the darts and I miss everything, and then I throw them again, and a thousand times over I throw them, and I began to hit the bullseye, I began to hit it more and more. What, what of those, what way of those is more like Christ? What way of those is more self-control? Is it the drawing the target after I've thrown? Or is it failing the thousand times till I start hitting in the center a little more consistently? 
Friends, I want to tell you, I'm concerned that we have grown so comfortable in our lives that we live with almost no target, no goal. And then when our darts fly, we say, I meant to do that. I meant to do that. Whether it's our fitness goals, whether it's our personal spiritual goals, whether it's our goals in our marriage, our goals with raising our children. If you don't have a plan for personal discipleship for your children, you are just throwing darts on the wall and going to draw a circle later. If you don't have a plan on how to love your wife and wash her in the water of the word and husband, I mean wife, submit to your husband and love him and support your family, then you are just throwing darts on the board and going to draw a circle later. Children, if you don't have a plan to obey your parents, even in the hardest time to do what they say to do, you are just throwing darts on the board and you're just drawing a circle around them later. If you don't have a plan to grow in faith, to have personal, physical health, you're just throwing darts on a board and drawing a circle around them later. Self-control is a thousand different tries, a thousand different efforts to hone in on what God requires. And yet, because we have been given everything so quickly, we think self-control is either about drawing the circle around the darts or it should just be We pick up a dart, and the very first time we should hit the bullseye. Self-control, if it shows us anything, it shows us our imperfections and our neediness for God. And then over time, it shows us his faithfulness. Steadfastness. This is related to self-control. It's related to what I've already said. The word steadfastness is the Greek word hypomone. It is the ability to bear up or endure during the face of difficult or seemingly impossible circumstances. Someone said that self-control relates to the pleasures of life. I'm controlling myself as it relates to the pleasures of life. And steadfastness relates to the pressures of life. How do you hold up under pressure? It takes a portion of all these virtues we have mentioned to be able to withstand immense pressure, but it takes a massive amount of self-control to not jump at the first thing that might seem better. Peter is casting a side eye here at the false teachers in chapter 2 because they were drawing people away with a misunderstanding and the lies about the gospel. He's saying, hey, hey guys, not only faith, virtue, you've got those things, self-control, you've developed those things, but you have to also remember there is a key in this faith, in the longevity of this faith, and it's called endurance. And it is, it is using that knowledge and that discernment to call you know, call a spade a spade. When you see these false teachers here, you need to have the discipline to call it out and walk away. Walk away from their lies. Don't jump for these false teachers. Don't jump for everything they have to say. There are other ways we should see endurance play a role in our life, and these are sort of practical. Uh, I need you to hear this. I need you to hear this. Dial back in. I know, I know I think everybody has like a 15-minute attention span. It's been less than 15 minutes, but dial back in. The path that you are on right now, unless you are in direct sin, you should assume that you are called to endure. Do you hear me? The path that you are on right now in your life, unless you are called, unless you are sinning, you should assume that you are called to endure unless God calls you to something else definitively. 
unless you are sinning. Self-control and steadfastness is to complete the path that you are on unless you are objectively called away from it or unless you are in sin. Uh, we have to face another part of endurance that we need to see is we have to face difficulty and trials. We shouldn't always look for a way out, which I've, I've talked about already. I won't go into any further. Another thing that you need to see coming, and this is very important, endurance tells us, like the false teachers in chapter 2, that if you hear a gospel that is contrary to the gospel that you are being taught here, that, you are being, that you're reading yourself or you've been taught before, then you should flee and abandon it. Listen, here's, here's your problem. Here's your problem that you're going to face, okay? We have more knowledge that we've ever had in the history of the world. As a matter of fact, we're about to have AI write us anything we want to know about anything with perfect detail. So we can know anything about anything, right? We have more knowledge than we've ever had, and we are dumber than we've ever been. So you're going to have people on Facebook Reels telling you a lot of stupid stuff because they have partial knowledge of something, but they really don't know what knowledge is. They really don't know how to discern. So if you are watching a Reel and you hear somebody talk about this lost, discovered truth about the Bible, you just walk away. Discernment lets you know that if it's a gospel that's contrary to the one that I've been taught, that I'll walk away. If it's, a, if it's something that someone says about a word here or a word there, listen, the reason I'm saying this is because I've seen it. I've seen people do this about trans ideology and gender ideology and homosexuality. I've seen people do this uh, about the origin of Jesus, about mistranslating the original language. You will see somebody who acts like they are an authority on something, but it is wrong and it just makes them an idiot and it makes you an idiot for entertaining it. You are going to be tempted to jump towards that quick reel because it seems like knowledge and it seems like truth, but I'm telling you it's something that is only distracting you from your calling. And if your calling is not, if, you, if what you're doing right now is not sin and what you're doing right now is honoring the Lord, then you assume that you're supposed to endure during all situations, hard and bad and good. And the other thing I see about steadfastness is there is going to be a continued temptation to quit what is good for you. There's going to be a continual uh, temptation to quit what is good for you. I want to tell you, I want to encourage you. I've been more encouraged by our church in, in a well-rounded area than I have been in a long time. Did you know that all four of your elders work out together now three times a week? We exercise our body together three times a week. Our three of your elders with Tony coming in. We exercise our bodies together three times a week together and then more than that. All four of your leaders are worried about their physical health. But not only that, I've seen it in your own life. I've seen all of you or most of you making changes to work through your physical health. I want to tell you, your, your, your temptation is to not endure in that. But you need to know this, that physical health is just as important to your spiritual life as many other things that you think are important to your spiritual life. I want to tell you, if something tells you to stop doing something that's good for your spiritual health, you should assume that it's a lie from the devil and you should keep on enduring. If you, uh, if you feel the need or the tendency or the temptation to quit reading the Bible, you should turn from that temptation, you pray that God would remove it, and you should continue on in faith to pray, to practice self-disciplines, to be a part of a church, whatever it may be. There will be a temptation to stop doing something that is good for you. Don't stop. Don't stop. 
Continue to endure. Because endurance produces so many things. Romans 5, 3 through 4 says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hopes. Hope, James said, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Because the end of all that is that it produces a complete character. Endurance is a common trait amongst believers, and a moral restraint produces steadfastness. So we have to have a faith that helps develop virtue, a virtue that develops self-control and restraint, and self-control and restraint develop godliness. It's important to see godliness for what it is. Uh, yes, God has given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, but godliness is still a pursuit. It is still something we need to work out. Godliness, then, is the boots on the ground for faith, virtue, self-control, and endurance. Yes, I have, yes, we have everything we need for life and godliness, but yes, godliness is a work. I remember, and this may not give some of you comfort because I've worked on many of your houses, but I learned to do housework from YouTube. And also because my father-in-law did it, and I wanted to impress my father-in-law so he would let me marry his daughter, my future father-in-law. You've probably heard this story before, maybe not the YouTube part, but I learned a lot of what I learned from YouTube and trial and error, and there was a lot of error at the beginning. So I watched my YouTube videos, I watched my father-in-law, I watched every DIY show, and I, was, I had everything, I had all the tools, I had everything that I needed to be a construction worker, to do home improvement stuff. And yet I was not completely ready until I jumped into the fray, until I started practicing it. Friends, I want to tell you, godliness is having everything that you need and then having the discipline to do with what you have. To do with what you have. If you think about it, godliness is just worshiping well. It's being equipped, trained, and given a task and trying to accomplish it just like Jesus did. That is worship. Living like Jesus did. When we live our life that way, we worship him. Godliness is a quality that makes a person distinctive. I want to ask you a few questions about your own personal godliness. Is there enough to distinguish me from the person I was before Christ? Is there enough to distinguish you from the person that you were before Christ? Is there enough to distinguish me or you from my non-Christian friends, family, and coworkers as a Christian? When I have options, am I choosing cheap and petty things to love and invest in, or am I choosing better things? Do I take the easier path, or do I take the right and virtuous path? Godliness is something a regenerate person can possess, or will possess, but it's something that an unregenerate person cannot possess, because it comes from having a Christian nature. I got like two more minutes. I need to finish this. Seven is brotherly love. You may have already known this, but the word brotherly love here is ten Philadelphian. And the root word for uh, comes from Philadelphia. Brotherly love is Philadelphia. It's why the city was named Philadelphia. All of these virtues must characterize Christian community. But if love for each other is not present then those are empty works. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have away and I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then Paul ends chapter 13 by saying this, faith, hope, and love abide in these, but the greatest of these is love. I believe all these virtues confirm to ourselves that we are in Christ. And if that is true, then our love for each other confirms our faith to everyone else. Do you understand? All of the virtues that I mentioned before confirm to ourselves that we are in Christ. And love confirms to others that we are in Christ. If you find yourself growing in faith and knowledge but not love, you should start begging God for a stronger love. If you find yourself... If you find your love and affection only extends to people under your care, like your family or your friends, you should beg for Philadelphia. If you find that your love for the saints isn't strong enough to shut your mouth about them, you should pray that God gives you brotherly affection and love. If you find that your love for the church isn't strong enough to motivate you to learn and then to teach, to disciple, then you should pray that God gives you Philadelphia If you find that your love for the lost isn't strong enough to motivate you to share the gospel, then you should pray that God gives you that brotherly love. Love is what proves that our virtuous living is from God and not from ourselves. It is what others see as a genuine sign that Christ is in us. And then there's the last thing, and that's Christian love. He says, in godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. It's also called charity in other places. Brotherly affection is Philadelphia. The last word used for love here is agape. These are two of the three words used in the Bible or in the Greek language for love. This word agape means sacrificial love as it relates to Christ. It is a sacrifice of our life for him first and then for others. It's interesting because brotherly love is love because of our similarities to each other. And agape love is love in spite of our differences. The pinnacle of the list of virtues, friends, is Christian love. And I feel like because I spent so much time on everything else, I'm not going to really be able to do this justice. But we might talk about love a time or two over the next couple, 20 years. I believe love is the supreme evidence that one is a believer As a matter of fact, the goal of Christian instruction is this type of love. We see in 1 Timothy 5, the aim for our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We see in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one of you, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. False teachers and non-Christians may have some or all of these eight virtues, are many of these eight virtues, they can't have all of them, but they can't have love because anything done apart from the knowledge of Christ is not done in full love. False teachers may have a lot of these virtues, but they can't be done in a godly way because anything done outside of the redemption in Christ is done for yourself and that therefore negates the virtue itself. If faith is what what gets us on the virtuous path, love is what keeps us on it. How many of these virtues are regularly present in your life? How many of these virtues are regularly present in your life? What virtues should you be praying for and trying to sharpen? 
want to say if you find yourself not growing in many of these virtues, you should examine your heart and try and discover the problem. Is it me? Am I the problem? Do I lack conversion that leads to faith, that leads to a new nature, that leads to virtue, that leads to knowledge, that leads to self-control, that leads to restraint, that leads to love, that leads to brotherly affection? What am I lacking? What am I lacking that is causing me not to be able to grow in these things? You might find the answer is the Spirit of God and that you need to be redeemed. You might find the answer is that you have put yourself over other things and that you need to die to self and trust in the gifts of the Spirit that have been given to you already. But either way, if we have the nature of Christ, we grow in these things. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's just what we do. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We, we honor you. We know that we're not perfect. We know that we have a long way to go, that we still will continue to make mistakes on a daily basis. We will, when we want to follow you, we'll do the opposite. When we want to trust you, we'll do the opposite. Lord, help us to live by faith that develops virtue. Virtue develops knowledge, and knowledge is self-control, and self-control restraint. Help us to meet each other with brotherly kindness, with love. God, we praise you, we love you, we pray that you would just be blessed by this word today, that it would change our lives and make us more into your image. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.